Welcome to the Ridgecrest Lost and Found podcast, a place where we talk about all kinds of random stuff in the same way that you have a random box of lost and found items. That's what this podcast is about, where we just do random stuff. My name is Logan. I'm Steven. And today we've got Kylie Young. In person. In person. I'm glad uh, you're here. At least what part of person you can find. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. Um, so, Stephen, I don't know if you know this, but we are related by marriage, which means that he has to acknowledge me yeah. in like, as yeah. being a part of the family. Part of no, life. I have to acknowledge his wife. That's true. <laughs> and his two precious grandsons. Yeah, that's by yeah. blood. That He has no choice in that <laughs> yeah. matter. But I'm glad that you're here. I'm well, excited about this. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, so um, we'll just get, we'll get right into it. I'll, we were talking about how Glenn, Stephen's father-in-law, um, has a grandson. He's a grandfather now, or he's been a grandfather, but yeah. he's now officially like Peter's grandfather. Yes. Oh. And did you know that him and Brian Wright are teaching a grandparenting class here? Really? They are doing, it's called intentional grandparenting. And apparently it's been a hit. And like, they've talked about, um, like how to, like how to speak into the grandson or the grandchildren mm -hmm. from the not being the parent anymore. They've also talked about how to be good in-laws mm. and how to have relationship with the daughter or son-in-law. And then also the parent in-laws mm -hmm. of them, the, I guess the opposite grandparents, you would say. Yes. Mm -hmm. I think it's been well attended. Well, good. So, yeah. What do you, I guess, what do you think about that class? Do you think it's help? Do you think it would be helpful, important, not important? And then how is, how was that for you? Because you're now in great grandfather status, right? Well, I wish I had had that class 24 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I figured. Because the 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 grandparenting is aspect of it, uh, and Darrell and I will we have have some interesting discussions. But I recall one one time that I. We're going to make suggestions, and you know Darrell's strong-willed spirit. Darrell is uh, Megan's uh, uncle, okay. his yeah. son. My one of, his, one of son. his sons, yes. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he said, Dad, I will raise my children. I don't need your advice. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure that was a fun pill. Oh, to... that was a fun pill. I said, okay, son, I was just making suggestions. He says, I don't need your suggestions. But he was going through a very trying time uh -huh. to be husband, to be father, and, and wanting to do it right. And uh, I said, son, I, won't, I will never intervene and try to correct you on being a parent. If you got any questions, I'll be glad. And uh -huh. <laughs> about mm, 17 years later, with his second son, he said, Dad... What did you do when I rolled my eyes back in my head for the first time? <laughs> that, there's no way that happened with his children. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> me, me and Megan's cousins would never be such a way. No. No. Yeah. <laughs> but life has been interesting for him. But now, as he is a grandparent, then that, that's, uh, that's a whole different, whole different world. But that's something, the one part that I think you made a comment about it, Stephen, and I think also is interesting, it, that I wouldn't have thought about until I got into married life and all that, is the relationship between in-laws, mm -hmm. as in like my parents and, and Megan's parents. Mm -hmm. And 
how that, I guess for some families, like if they live in different States, it's less of an issue, but because both of ours live local, like that's, it hasn't been bad, but it's still a relationship that you have to navigate. Mm -hmm. And so I can imagine even having grandparent in-laws, if, especially if both grandparents are still alive, that is something that you have to navigate. And then all, it's just a whole bunch of relationship stuff. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, if you don't think about it, you just have to be like it says, you have to be intentional about how you go about those things. Mm -hmm. So very intentional and very careful. Yeah. Yeah. I don't always do things carefully. You know, <laughs> <laughs> well, before we get too deep, why don't you give us, uh, it'd probably be helpful if you gave backstory into members of your family, since we just talked about Darrell, mm -hmm. but then I would love it if you would just give us some backstory into who you are, where you came from, where you work now, and then we'll just kind of piece things together as we go. Well, I'm a very blessed man. Uh, I, I grew up in Meridian. My dad was the head of the math and science department at Meridian. At that time, it was Meridian Community, Meridian Junior College, and it, it, when he retired 25 years after that, it was Meridian Community College. Mm -hmm. Now, there was good and bad to that. It, the good part was that I had, uh, uh, he, he had an extremely deep love for his family. I mean, he, he loved his kids. He loved his wife. A deep, deep love. Uh, and, but the other side of that is that I took mm, a third of my college courses from him. Yep. And uh, he said, son, I'm not going to give you anything, but you will lead the class in every class that you take from me. There were, there were some expectations. There were some expectations, and I tried to live up to my father's expectations. Uh, very gracious, careful man, very selfless man. Uh, my mother was very outgoing. My dad was very quiet. I had two brothers, two older brothers. Uh, one, my middle brother was five years older. My oldest brother is seven years older. My, my oldest brother was a hero to me all of my life because he was big. Mm -hmm. He's a big guy like you. Uh, he, he and my mother clashed at every front. And so consequently. Is that because they were really a lot alike or they just. Their personalities butted. My mother was short. He was tall, but she was boss. Yeah. And he wanted to be boss, <laughs> and that didn't work. So he said, "I'm going to get out of this." And so he became a career army man. Mm -hmm. uh, and he uh, he served in two tours of Vietnam. He served two tours of Korea. He was a master sergeant when he finally retired. He got 22 years in the Army. But his last <clears throat> tour of Vietnam really did a number on him. <clears throat> PTSD was big time bad. That cost him two marriages. Mm. But he's been married to his present wife for 25 years, and they make a great couple. So family life for me was kind of a unique thing. The, the one thing that would be unique <clears throat> for me and for anyone that had this situation, when I graduated from high school, I was five foot three and weighed 95 pounds. In a class of 500, they were, most of the girls was taller than me. <laughs> just, say, just say the height and weight again, for just for everybody. Five foot three 
95 pounds. And so I really so wanted Megan, to play. Megan was bigger than you. Yeah. <laughs> I really wanted to play football, but my dad and the coach got together and they said, we don't want one of our players to die in high school. <laughs> Because it was Big 8 football. I mean, it was rough, tumble, <clears throat> hard fought. So I chose to be an elementary school, uh, at what they called then was, a, <clears throat> it was what we would call a PE teacher mm -hmm. and coach. So I coached football rather than play football. There you go. Uh, but in my freshman year in college, I had an appendectomy. That's the only thing I could see that made any change. In the 18 months after that appendectomy, I grew eight inches and, and 45 pounds. Wow. So that was just a, kind of a, uh, the Lord stepped down and said, I'm going to change you. Mm -hmm. In that same period of time is when the Lord uh, called me into ministry. So, While you were at Meridian Junior College, or was this when you moved on? I, I was still at Meridian Community yeah. College, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah. I didn't know you had an appendectomy either. Where did you Where did you go after Meridian Community College? I went to Mississippi College. Oh yeah, yeah. of course you did. I knew yeah. that. That was a dumb question. Yeah, yeah. I went to MC and uh, <clears throat> I met Penny. Well, I I knew Penny when we were in in uh, junior high school, but we had nothing to do with each other because she was only far much taller than me at that point. She had some standards. Uh, she had some physical standards, standards. And a little kid <laughs> wasn't one of her joys. But uh, when we were at the community college together, uh, she worked in the bookstore, and I worked in the gym uh, taking care of the, the, the physical activities. Mm -hmm. uh, it was open at night, so somebody had to be there to hold things in order. And that's where we really got to, to meet each other and, and develop a relationship. And unique thing about that is that uh, I had a hard time working myself up to ask her for a date until one Sunday, one of my best friends brought her to church. And I said, if I'm going to do anything, I better take some action. Mm -hmm. So the next week I asked her for a date and she agreed. And that was it. There was no other. So for the next year, year and a half, uh, we dated and, um, uh, the rest is history. As they say. As they say. Before we get too far into it, did you did you grow up in church? Were parents very involved with the church you were at, or how did that come about? Very involved. <clears throat> From the earliest days, if the door was open, we were there. My dad was a deacon. My mother was uh, in many of the churches. She was the Sunday school superintendent. Mm -hmm. uh, so I just I grew up around the church. But I didn't grow up in church because when I was in the sixth grade, my parents separated. Mm. Not completely, but my mother was gone most of the time. So my dad practically raised me by himself. That had some distinct uh, issues. <clears throat> he, my, my father never physically disciplined me. My mother kept our landscaping in order <laughs> using switches yeah, on all three of her boys. Yeah. She was the corrector. She really was. That, I have one memory of, of a switch where she said, my mom said, go get a switch. Yeah. 
And after that, I think it was just too much effort for her to wait and try to let me figure it out. So then she, you know, would go to a belt or a hand or whatever. But Mm -hmm. that, you know, that, that internal conundrum of like, how big of a switch do you get? Is yeah. it, is if it's too small, you just they're gonna wear you out and tell you to go get another one. Mm-hmm. But you can't go too big, or you won't you make it. Right. That's the good parts of life. Yeah. Just trying to figure out what what size switch to get. Right. But I have no scars from switches on my body. Uh-huh. No scars at all. A lot of discipline, but no scars. That's so funny. What was your uh, not to throw your parents under the bus? What was their preferred discipline? Um, pretty standard. Um, occasional spanking. Um, we got grounded a lot. Just sent to our room, but that's about it. See, that was the interesting part for my family, and it probably had a, a lot to do with me and my brother more than anything else. But we never, we never did grounding. But we, a lot of my discipline happened when I was younger. So like, single digit up to like maybe early preteen. By the time I was a teenager. I don't know if I just kind of outgrew the let's act like a punk phase or whatever, but that just, we never really had groundings or anything like that. So it was, I, I remember kids talking about how they got grounded and that was just something that I didn't really deal with. So it was interesting. Mm-hmm. So you spent two years at Mississippi college. Mm-hmm. I was married after my, End of my junior year, mm-hmm. so Penny, we lived in married ministerial apartments my senior year. Where was that at? Like, where were the apartments? Were they just in Clinton? Or they were in Clinton. It was it, it was ministerial apartments at that time. Yeah, they they put them there just for that. Now it's I think it's College Manor or something like yeah. that. They sold it for a while. They bought them back, but uh, we were in the first group of people that lived in those apartments. They had just built them. What did you major in? Did you do Christian studies or did you do something else? For one semester, I did Christian studies, and my dad said, son, that's not good. And I said, what's the deal, dad? He said, well, what you need in in today's culture is that uh, it may be that you can't make a living as a pastor, and you need something else to fall back on. Mm. And so I said, he said, since you've got so much math in your background i suggest you'd be a math major and I only had to take two more courses when mm-hmm. at, at mc and i had a, a, all the grounds for my math major so i took a lot of religion courses yeah uh that was something it didn't it wasn't a intentional choice for me because i majored in business yeah. administration which is basically a management degree but it was when i almost failed out of pre-med i just moved to business because i thought you know my dad owns his own business you do business and you can specialize in accounting if that's the way i wanted to go but it just kind of as i stayed in it one i enjoyed it it was it was helpful and i got a lot out of it but then my thing was if i know i'm going to seminary which at that point it would have had to be a huge life change for me not to go to seminary Mm -hmm. um i was like i might i might as well not double up right and get a Christian studies and a seminary degree, I can get something that interests me and that could be helpful and then go get the MDiv or whatever. Yeah, that was the same thing that my dad was saying. Yeah. yeah. How, this is probably a rabbit hole we're going to get into. I was talking to someone you know yesterday, Mr. Lum, uh-huh. Don, uh-huh. and he, we just, the conversation went a lot of places, but one thing that he talked about was the need for bivocational pastors. Mm-hmm. And he said, being a part of the convention, what I've what I know and what I've seen 
is a need for bivocational pastors. Mm-hmm. So how do you how do you feel about those bivocational pastors and the and do you agree that there's a need for them? And then how do you think about that, knowing that we're both in full time ministry? Mm-hmm. Well, there is a tremendous need because of the number of churches that need a bivocational pastor. They're small churches, averaging less than a hundred, some averaging less than fifty, so they can't financially pay a salary that would accommodate a full-time ministry. They're small rural churches. We've got probably 700 of those in Mississippi and out of the 2,000 churches. So like today, there's a greater need for bivocational because when, when I was working in the Baptist building, we averaged about 200 churches that were without a pastor. Now there's 500 churches that are without a pastor, and they're harder to find every day. So a bivocational uh, need is is very strong at this point. So how do you, how does that normally work? I'm assuming it works like there's someone who's doing a has their own business in the secular world, non-church mm-hmm. world, and he or he feels a call to ministry and he just jumps in. Is there mm-hmm. training that comes after that, or is Sometimes is it just the pastor feels called to a church and then they pick up another job once they get in there? Is it both? Well, it's both. Uh, I, I like the first year that I was uh, that Pete and I were married. I was a pastor up at uh, Hope Baptist Church. Interesting situation, very bivocational because that church I was there two Sundays a month mm. because they were a halftime church. Yeah. And I, I was two Sundays a month at another church. So there's all kinds of situations that open up based upon the need and the ability of the church. Both of those churches averaged about 35, uh, and they were family churches. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, you, you see all kinds of situations that uh, has that bivocational ministry is very critical to, for the carrying out. And the other part of that, those small churches will be in the midst of a community that may have three or four churches like that. Not on your life are they ever going to merge together to build one strong church. (laughs) They just want to have those family churches, and that's where they've been. I mean, Hope Baptist Church, where I was, my first church, average 35. Today, 50 years later, they still average 35. Yeah. That was something that I had to learn and I had to, uh, either humble myself or just not be so young about things, but coming from Broadmoor, my home church, which had 2000 members and then even going to first Canton, which had, you know, anywhere from a hundred to 350 at its highest while I was there. Um, sometimes you look at these small churches of less than a hundred and you think like those have got to be the most unhealthy, like, uh, everyone's bickering. No one can stay. Everyone hates it. But the matter is, is there, a lot of those churches are extremely healthy. Now, some are very not healthy, Mm -hmm. but you can have a very healthy church. that's in a very small community Mm -hmm. and it stay around 35 to 50 because Mm -hmm. that's just the way demographics work. It's the way the community set up. Mm -hmm. And, um, there's some really good churches that have less than a hundred people in it. When I was at the Baptist building, I, over that period of 11 years, I was interim at 13 churches. The last one was New Hebron Baptist Church down in Lawrence County, okay. a very healthy church. 
averaged about between 100 and 125. Mm -hmm. They still average that. Still a very healthy church, a very strong church. Uh, but then you, you have some others that were around us that were struggling just because of the, where they're located and the number of people that they were willing to go out and try to reach. Mm -hmm. uh, so that the needs vary according to the geographic area and their willingness mm. to change. I just think, I just thought that was interesting because that's yeah. just for me who grew up in a church where there's only full-time ministry, there's probably right. not even, there probably were very few part-time people at Broadmoor. Right. And then only being in full-time ministry bivocational and, and small church ministry is just a world that I just don't have a, a ton of experience in. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. he, there's some people where that's their whole life. Right. And, they're, and they well, love it. And most of the churches, the far by, by far the greatest number of churches in Mississippi are, are smaller, yep. a hundred or less, 150 or less, but, and some of them are very strong rural churches. Yeah. Uh, I just thought that was interesting. Yeah. So when, when did you make the move to Texas? Is there still some time before we get there? Or was that pretty soon after Mississippi College? I, I came back to Meridian for two years and taught school at Meridian High School. Is and that where you graduated, Meridian High School? Yeah, I graduated from high school to Meridian High School. My That's where my dad was uh, the teacher at community college there. Uh, but I knew that I had to get on with seminary. So at the end of my first year... Uh, as a teacher, I began the process of application for for Southwestern. Couldn't go to New Orleans at that time because it was in great, great theological upheaval. Don't know if you knew this about... No, I was going to ask if New Orleans was even open at that point. Oh, yeah. New Orleans is... Uh, Southern Seminary was the, the first. New Orleans was the next. It's the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, as they like to say. It's it, well, it's better. Yeah, uh, all of them have gone through extreme struggle. Right now, Southwestern is in uh, challenging situation. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so I said, okay, I'm gonna go to go to seminary. My pastor said, well, you don't want to go to New Orleans right now. At that time, the president and seven of the theological school faculty. Uh, were encouraged to resign mm. because of theological, very deep theological errors. Uh, so uh, we chose to, to go to, to Southwestern. I, I fully agreed with that. Penny said, let's do this. And so we moved to Southwestern, didn't know a soul, uh, had a very trying first two years because I, I, I had one uh, in those two years, uh, Penny's mother, well, my mother was killed in a car wreck one month after Penny and I married. And then uh, her mother died. And then uh, her father died shortly after we moved to Southwestern. So my dad was the only one of the grandparents that, mm. that lived. And he, he died while we were out there right. and, and while we were in Texas. Uh, so Seminary situation, I'm, I'm very blessed to have been at Southwestern during its peak of strength, great, solid professors. Because you, I mean, at least where around here, anyone who's anywhere around your age, you don't even have to ask them where they went to seminary. They're going to New Orleans. 
Yeah. Yeah. But during that time, I was encouraged by my pastor uh, and other pastor friends who had just graduated from New Orleans. It's like, you don't want to go to New Orleans right now. Mm -hmm. It is not on good ground. Landrum Level came in and straightened everything out. He made certain it was, of course, the Southern Baptist shift and Re- yeah, we were. You were probably right in the middle of all that. Right in the middle of all of that. So the just challenged. Do you know anything about that? No. Can you can you just give a, a as quick of a synopsis as you want to about the the big convention meeting that happened and kind of the how we stuck to conservative values? I think that'd be interesting because a lot of our people who listen to this would not even have a clue that that even happened. Well, in the early nineteen seventies. After the debacle at New Orleans, there there surfaced a group that was uh, fundamentalist, you would call, right? And uh, some were far to the left, some were far to the right, but a group said we we need to stabilize theologically all of our schools, mm-hmm. and that's when. Uh, Paige Patterson and uh, uh, an attorney, from Pressler, Paul Pressler from Houston, they said, we want to see what we can do to stabilize it. So they said it's going to take a period of years. So they very selectively got the right people on committees, got the right people in positions of trustees so that they could stabilize everything. Well, those who were on the far left said they gone too far right so they had the southern baptist convention and then they had the cooperative baptist convention and uh that's that's where it kind of put a major split which resulted in texas at the baptist general convention of texas and then the southern baptist convention of texas Mm -hmm. so you have two different uh entities of conventions within the state so you had a, a liberal a very liberal movement and a very, very conservative movement. Mm-hmm. And, and I was at Southwestern when all of that was, was going on. Yeah. Uh, and there's, and there's, and there's, I've, I know uh, some good churches that are in the Texas Baptist convention, mm-hmm. but this is crazy how all that worked out. It is. It and is. there's, it's, you can look back and since that time, so many other denominations and conferences and whatever have dealt with, I've had to deal with liberal theology and progressive Christianity, and we have our own issues as yeah. Southern Baptists, but we just haven't really had to deal with that in the yeah. last, what, 40 years, right. just because there was such a, a line drawn, yeah. and like, this is who Southern Baptists are going to be. Right. But the one thing is I, I look back and see where I went through in my seminary experience and what I did my D-Men, what I wrote my D-Men project on. Uh, it was strong for me, but the one thing that we have missed and pulled away from denominationally are the very is the very essence of what Southern Baptists are called to do. Uh, well, what Christians are called to do: first, you obey the great commandment, love God with all your heart and soul, mm-hmm. and to love your neighbors yourself. Well, they in practice they say, "Let's do this." But in result, I'm going to take care of me and mine. Right. I'm going to love God, but I'm going to take care of me and mine. 
The other side is that he says, obey the Great Commission, that, that we're to go into the uttermost and disciple. As Paul says, think which you've learned from me, these entrusted faithful men who will be able to, to disciple others also. Well, discipleship has been put on the back shelf. I have to confess, I did my doctorate in disciple making. I must say, you have a bit of a bias. I have a bit of a bias. And then when I got into, when I moved from the church that where I did my doctorate, uh, my, 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 my study there, I became pastor of North Irving Baptist Church. Got involved in the church growth movement. Church exploded. We were one of the 600 fastest growing churches in the Southern Baptist Convention mm -hmm. that, uh, that time. I, I stopped making disciples, not slowed down. I put the, all the energy into the growth, but your growth is going to be limited. It's going to be up and down if you don't go deep. Yeah. And so that's where Southern Baptists have, have suffered. And when Robbie Gallaty, who was on the convention board of analyzing what we're doing, he said, we, we as a convention... He said, we, we grew, but we lost. He said, we can't find those 8,000 people. We, we're, we're, we're missing. And the greatest time was supposed to be growth. We actually lost ground. Mm. And not only did we lose ground then, we're continuing to lose ground because we're not building multiplying disciples as a practice. At some places we are, but we've lost that very strong, intense situation. Consequently, our culture, not just the church culture, but our in general culture, we're not making the right kind of impact in community here in the United States. Yeah. So you could you could probably spend hours talking about this, but if you could go back. And you, let's say you're at a North Irving or you're at a church that's, that's exploding. How do you, how do you do both? Yeah. If you have people coming in droves, how do you put them into a discipleship network or process or pipeline at the rate at which they're showing up? How do you do that? Well, well, uh, you could ask, you could ask, uh, our, our son Darrell, uh, he's at a church in Tuscaloosa, which is a part of a church in Birmingham, yep. and uh, the Church of the Highlands. Uh, Chris Hodges was the founding pastor in a small inner-city apartment complex, started a house church there. That house church has now grown to not only, I think they have 37 campuses plus yeah. all. I mean, it's massive. It's massive. It's massive. But they've done it. They said, okay, here's our culture. Here's who we are. If you're going to be a part of us, you have to do these 12 things. You have to go through an equipping to be a part of that church. Mm -hmm. You can't just be casual. You have to be very intentional. Well, we don't make that a priority in most of our churches. Right. Uh, we, we want to get them in, get them in the water, get them in, in other situations, but we don't make that the priority. Well, that is the main priority there. Mm -hmm. But that's one of the few I can count on this hand, the number of churches that are willing to make that kind of a commitment to say we are going to be a biblical church in that manner. But so many people say, I don't, 
I don't want the barrier to entry to be so high. I want people to just be able to get in here easy because that's how we get people is we mm -hmm. make it easy. What yeah. you're saying is we're making it harder. Right. So now, biblical discipleship is harder. Uh, you, you, you look at, at Saddleback Church. When Rick Warren was asked by a guy, well, I don't like what you're doing. He said, that's okay. But if you're not willing to do that, you need to go down the street mm. because this is who we are. And not many churches are willing to make put that kind of a standard in place to say, we would love to have you here, but this is who we are and this is what we're going to do. And if you want to be a part of this, we'd love you. But if you don't want to be a part of this, you can find another place to where you would be more comfortable. We're not going to force you either way. Yeah, right. I just, yeah, I think, I think that... Sometimes we underestimate that of how people want to be a part of something that has meaning mm -hmm. and has definition right. and that knows what it is. I don't think people like to be a part of a ambiguous little club. It's like, well, you just let anybody in. I mean, right. just by definition, people want yeah. to be a part of something that matters and has meaning mm -hmm. and knows who they are. Right. And I think... I, I don't know. I think that draws people more than a, Hey, just come hang out, have a good time and right. you can join and it'll be good. It'll be good. Right. Well, those people who want to come and hang out and have a good time, they are continually changing scenarios because, well, I had a good time here for a while, but I'm going to go somewhere else. Right. now. Once again, we're going to, we could go on and on about yeah. that. And we probably will, we'll probably swing around to it at the end because I love talking about discipleship and you are all about it. Um, so y'all were in, y'all were in Texas for a, a while, 17 years. Right. Mm -hmm. And you had, like, you had all your kids there, right? Cause Jenny H was in high school when y'all moved, right? Or where, how old was Steven? Steven was mm, going into the second grade when we moved from Texas to Greenville. Uh, Darrell was born here in mm -hmm. Jackson. Okay. And then Jennifer was born in Fort Worth. Yeah. And Stephen was born in Austin. There you go. Yeah. And then, so you made the move from Texas where? To Greenville. Yeah. Moved from Irving, Texas, Metropolis. Yeah. Bloom, bursting. We lived there for nine years, and the population grew from 90,000 to 160,000. It was just, how did that feel like just on the street, like day to day going from a whole bunch of people to a massive amount of people? It was, it was, you could not keep up with it. I mean, it was just a constant turnover of people, a constant influx of people. Mm -hmm. The median age of our church in Irving was 28. Yeah. Just young family, young professional. Just everywhere. Yeah. The median age of our church in Greenville was 58. <laughs> I was there nine years and conducted 11 funerals in nine years. In Greenville, I was there six months and conducted 12 funerals. Mm -hmm. So it's just a whole different, whole different arena. Now, since that time, Irving has changed dramatically. Uh, demographically, uh, the population has changed tremendously. The church system has changed tremendously. The largest church that was in Irving at that time is now a Hispanic church. Because the community has changed right. demographically so much, and I'm I'm not super upset at that. I mean, no. if, your if your demographic is changing, change with your community. Change with the community. I can think of a lot of churches 
that just died completely. There are churches here in Jackson, Mississippi, that when I was a student at uh, Mississippi College, uh, I was asked to consider being a youth pastor at one of those churches. Mm -hmm. At that time, they were running twelve to 1,500. Now they uh, 50. Yeah. And, and, and it will very soon be no longer, Anglo will be no longer part of that church yeah. because they're, it's just demographics. It's, and now it's a 90% African-American community. Mm -hmm. It's just completely changed. So knowing that you're, you're sitting in a room of a church that was one of the churches that, that moved from Northside Drive, what is, what is the balance of staying and changing with your community to moving to a new spot? Well, you, you, you have to look at all of the demographics and all of the challenges. If you're going to stay where you are, you have to change completely what you're doing because mm -hmm. the demographics will demand that. But if you're not willing to change what you're doing and the ministry that you have, uh, then you need to let somebody with that demographic culture with the aptitude of say we can we can minister in this climate we will do whatever it takes to minister in this climate mm -hmm. is it going to be a dual ministry or well like it at north irving when we were there we had a not only was it anglo but we also had a deaf church we also had a korean church and but we had a our congregation was multi we we had Hispanics, we had uh, Africa, real Africans. I mean, these folks were from different parts of Africa. Yeah. Uh, but we accommodated them with the need. We, we accommodated them the best we could to let them feel a part of the whole church. So the the Korean and the Hispanic and, and stuff like that, were those members of your church or those were churches that used your building? What was that? Both. They okay. were all members, but they were they were also that particular church. They had the Korean gotcha. church. They were a church there, but they were under the umbrella of our of our church of the Baptist. You know, gotcha. the Red River. Did that was there any uh, not divisiveness, but did they feel like a unity with the church, or was it more of like our church is the Korean church? Well, the the unity came when we came together as a as all of the bodies we came together at least once a month in a corporate worship okay. uh, because the Korean church ministered on uh, on primarily on the afternoon when they had their regular worship the 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 uh, sign language deaf church ministered in a different part of our building we just swapped out spaces mm -hmm. uh, so we accommodated as we could and and in both of those situations, well, in all those situations, we did not go out looking for those ministries. They appeared, and then we accommodated and tried to to provide for them the best we could. Okay. And there's just people everywhere. People everywhere. I mean, just everything was changing rapidly. Mm -hmm. I mean, because of the the tech, the high tech community was just bursting. Uh, Las Colinas business district uh, just came in and uh, yeah. just took over the whole area. And the whole DFW Metroplex was right. just exploding. DFW Airport yeah. was built. Uh, 
<laughs> interesting thing. When I moved to North Irving, my custodians were a senior adult couple. They'd been doing it for a while. And he told me a story. He said, Preacher, you need to hear something. He said, about five years ago, a man came and offered me uh, some land. He had a big farm. He was going to retire. Uh, and he said, I'm, I'm old. I can't buy a farm. I'm like, oh, yeah, you can. I'll, I'll, I, I will finance it for you. I just need to get rid of this property. He said, I just can't do it. He said, I'll sell you a thousand acres of land for $20 an acre. There you go. And the guy says, I can't do it. That thousand acres of land, part of, well, all of that thousand acres of land is a part of a larger development called DFW Airport. <laughs> that was probably bought for a little bit of money. That was bought for a little bit of money, yes. So I've spent, I've spent time on the land that that guy was almost yes, like yes. I've been all over the Dallas well, airport. Right. And our church was in the landing zone of DFW airport. When it was a strong crosswind, the planes would come in, not at a straight landing, but they would come in uh -huh. at an angle. And then right before they landed, they would twist it back to land solidly. It was quite an, quite an experience. And we had probably 15 pilots in our, in our church at the time. So, yeah. so you got your D men mm -hmm. and then did you just, is that when you just said, I feel the call to senior pastor in Greenville opened up or how did that move happen? Well, I got my D men still when I was at Hyde park in Austin, Texas. Oh, gotcha. And and then I knew that the Lord wanted me to be as a senior pastor. And so I beginning to, I just began to pray and, and uh, consider, but right. Well, just like when you get out of any seminary, they're going to send your resume all over the country. Mm -hmm. And I, I had a church in California, had a church in Boston, another one in the, in the States, and then at uh, where I went to in, in North Irving. I had one back here in Mississippi, which is not at the time for me to, to do that. But mm -hmm. uh, when, when the Lord opened the door at North Irving, uh, we said that we could stay here the rest of our life. And that's what I thought I would be. Everywhere I've gone, I thought mm -hmm. I could stay the rest of my life. But it was quite different. Yeah, that's. there's something about being planted where you are in a church and not looking to what's next. Right. And that's been something for me that is I've never wanted to go to a church. And your son-in-law had a lot of influence in that right. with me. He said, never go somewhere where you think, I'll be here for a couple of years because you'll always be looking to what's next and right. you'll never plant deeply and right. get rooted where you, you are. You, you can't go if you don't plan to stay there forever. You can't be effective if you don't do that. Mm -hmm. And I've tried to do, I thought I would be in North Irving for the rest of my life. I thought I would be in Greenville. I thought I would be in Gulfport for the rest of my life. In every situation, the situation changed, and I had to adjust to see, okay, God, what are you trying to tell me here? Yeah. Uh, but then in Gulfport, he made the most dramatic change because I, when I lost my voice in, at first Gulfport, and no one across the country could tell me why my vocal cords were no longer working. So what, what is that story? It, it just one day, it just dropped, the, the floor dropped out? I, I was preaching a funeral at, at First Baptist Gulfport, and toward the end of the funeral, my voice began to quiver. I always had a problem with laryngitis. Mm -hmm. 
But that day, just I, I could not. I had to tell my associate who was helping me. I said, you know, uh, got in the funeral coach to go to the cemetery. I said, you're going to have to do the graveside. Because you already knew that something was going on. I, I said, I, I can't make myself heard. Mm-hmm. Immediately after the funeral, I went to my, my laryngologist, and he said, I want you to be going two weeks of silence. Just don't say a word, period, and mm-hmm. come back to see me. I did that, and he said, you got some very significant issues, and I don't know what to do about your issues. And then he began to send me to laryngologist uh, over the next several weeks, and nobody could tell me. So at that point, you were like, you were just talking with your breath, or I mean, what was what was it feeling like? Just I mean, I could night. not, I could not project any sound whatsoever. Uh, and he said, you just need to write notes. And in your line of work, that's that's, uh, that's kind of important, right? I went from January. Uh, until December trying to find a result mm-hmm. and when I went to the uh, Vanderbilt Voice Center in Nashville and the head laryngologist says there I've got 4,000 patients 12 of whom I can do nothing for and you're one of the 12 I have no understanding why your vocal system is not working I suggest you take sabbatical I said, well, Doc, I've only preached twice this year. He said, then you need to resign. Mm. So now that's uh, to drive home from Nashville knowing that you got to go home and tell your deacon chairman, your personnel committee chairman, you got to resign. How can we work this out? So, But as someone who's been in full-time ministry forever that yeah. feels a calling to preach the gospel, how do you reconcile that on that drive home? Not, I mean, cause you don't know what's going to happen. You probably think like it's done. Yeah. So, I mean, how are you reconciling that? I, I, we pray, we ask lots of questions. We tried to figure out what was going on and they, and, uh, I knew I could not fulfill. I couldn't ask the church to keep going the way I've been doing, not preaching twice in a year. Right. And so I had to, had to resign. Of course I had a, a disability, uh, policy in place already uh due to the a good friend and deacon in greenville he said every pastor needs a disability policy he said but it takes a while for it to go into effect but we went the church there was agreeable he said okay you set the date for your uh last day and then we'll give you i said i i it has to be immediate I have to resign now because it's going to take 90 days for this to go into effect. Uh, and they said, we'll, you can resign and we'll give you whatever time frame, we'll give you a severance package of that, of that income. And so that's what we took. And then it took two years for a, me to find a doctor who could treat he had me take a shillings test. I said, what does that do? He says, that's going to t- determine what your body absorbs because there's certain things that you, you need to have for different systems. And it turned out that I do not ab- absorb any vitamin B12 orally. Oh. Uh, could, you could take vitamins 
all all day, but orally, I could not. It was not doing the Something job. Something about your digestive system just, just wouldn't absorb would, it. Wouldn't absorb it. So he how'd said, your energy feel? I'm the same way. I'm just kind of not. I don't. I didn't know why I was not feeling super good. Yeah, because uh, because you had no B12 in you. Right, and so he said, "I want you to start taking B12 shots, and let's just see what happens." Within 90 days, I had 80 percent of my voice quality back, and that's as much as I've ever gotten since then, mm-hmm. since 2001, when I when he discovered that. The body's so crazy. It is. I mean, crazy. It's so and complicated. I've had. That was the third time that I had had problems. I had a problem in Greenville, but I went through speech therapy there. And I've had it since I've retired from the Baptist building. I've been through it a couple of times. The latest was just last year right? when I had a struggle again and went through voice therapy and re-educated my vocal system. But uh, as you hear now, I still have a scratch in my voice, which is there. I can't. Mm-hmm. I, I I went. I've been through voice therapy several times, so I just have to be very careful. I also uh, take allergy shots because I'm a. <laughs> uh, when I did the allergy test up here at the, the allergy center on 51, I was allergic to 25 of the 40 things that they tested me for. <laughs> yeah, uh, there's a, a church member that was. When he he's probably mid thirties and he just got an allergy test and he's like, turns out I'm allergic to everything. Yeah, and in my whole life I have been. Or yeah, he's like, oh well, I survived so far. Well, the first time I was tested, I was allergic to fifty five out of sixty things. That was in Greenville. That's mm-hmm. the worst place for allergies on the planet, I think. So yeah. much uh, chemi- chemicals right. and agricultural situations. It was a challenge. So what you said that was like two years start to finish or two years until you started to figure it out? Well, at two years, uh, I had not been able to speak at all. Right. And when the doctor discovered the B12 situation, he said, let's try this and see what will work. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we were still living in Gulfport. Uh, I, we were members of Michael Memorial Church and the pastor of Michael Memorial Church asked, he says, I really need some help in pastoral ministry. Would you come and join our staff part-time now that you got your voice back? And so I stayed there as associate pastor for for education administration at, at, at Michael Memorial until I went to the Baptist building. How was, how was the transition, what some would consider a demotion, from senior pastor to associate pastor, I know that you didn't see it that way. But how how did that how was that transition for you? Well, fortunately, the church where I that we were members of Michael Memorial, every member, every part of the staff came directly from that church, mm-hmm. from the pastor down to secretaries. We were all members of the church that moved in a position of of a staff position. Mm-hmm. So it was a very unique church. Yeah. And it's something that a lot of churches try to do. Yeah. You try to bring people up from the inside or from right. the church, but mm-hmm. you don't you never really see it done to that extent. Right. That's wild. Um so how did you get from Michael Memorial to where you were working at Ridgecrest? Or helping well, at Ridgecrest or whatever your Well, from role Michael was. Memorial I went to the Baptist building right. as director of Sunday school. 
And while at uh, the Baptist building, uh, Phil Walker asked me to come and serve as interim education for a while. And so I did that for six months. That's all I could do. I had who did you who did you fill in for? Like who had just left? Uh Mike. Yeah. McCool. Mike McCool went to uh that place. Went yep. to Liberty in, yep. in, in Flowood. Uh and so I came as, as interim there knowing that it was gonna be touchy. There were some situations that you just didn't wanna ruffle the feathers too much mm-hmm. uh some some significant changes needed to be made but when they tried to make them they made it too drastically yeah and the church went through great challenge uh so i was here as interim then and then when i retired from the baptist building phil called me and said i want you to come and help us in off-campus ministry mm. So I served for a year in the uh, helping to develop uh, apartment and mobile home uh, community ministries. And it was going good until uh, the Lord called me to First Baptist. Yeah. That's been a, quite a change. I said, I, I'm, I've got a, I'm very happy. I'm working 15 hours a week. I'm enjoying what I'm doing. He said, well, I really want you. I really need you here. Uh, and and part of it then was okay, Lord. I, I don't want it to be a financial situation. I want it to be you. Mm-hmm. So Penny and I prayed very very intensely. We prayer walked this church. We prayer walked First Baptist for weeks, just walking and seeking, and until we finally came to the to the point that okay, God, you're calling me away from Ridgecrest to go 15 blocks. Yeah. To to First Baptist, which I would have never considered doing, but it was something that the Lord just opened the door for. Mm-hmm. So we'll keep things general when I ask this question, or you can be as specific as you want. Whether it's you're trying to develop a discipleship model, whether you're trying to um, heal from some bad past decisions, whatever. How do you, you walk into a church and you see that there are sometimes big changes to be made. What, how do you walk into that in a healthy way? And then maybe what are the, what are like the first step or steps that you would do to make a big change? Knowing that the answer is not just make the change and let the chips fall. Yeah. You can't just go in and make a change. Right. Uh, You have to, you have to build a trust level first. Now, when I went to Greenville, the most unusual situation, the day that I walked into the church as pastor, I was 100% accepted and trusted Hmm. as the pastor. Why do you think that was? The, The Lord just made that happen. When I went to Irving, a church that had merged, the church, Irving Church, had split seven years earlier. And the, the previous pastors that I followed had been there 13 months, and then he went to another church. So oh, there's, wow. But the, the two bodies had come back together. Uh, but trust was not on the table. Right. Acceptance of this new pastor 
and so they stood back and just were waiting for me. It took me seven years at Irving to, to really become the pastor. Yeah. We grew a lot, but the real trust. And, but, you, can, and you can feel that. Yeah. You can feel when people are kind of keeping a half step back or there's right. still there's still some space yeah. for good or ill. You yeah. can feel that yeah. in relationships. A funny thing, uh, we needed a, a sign for identity, so we put up a new church sign, big, tall mm-hmm. church sign. <laughs> and one of my deacons, uh, we were putting the, the marquee up there, and he said, well, don't put his name up there permanent. Just use some chalk because he's not going <laughs> to be here very long. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I, that I was there nine years, but I was pastor for two years, mm-hmm. and I, the, the Lord was making some changes. And there was a couple of, uh, I mean, we we expanded the worship center, we built a new children's building, and there were other things that were on the horizon. And the, we had a business meeting. And in that process to establish that children's building, the question was asked from the floor by one of the ladies in the church, why do we have to keep growing? Mm. And I said, wait a minute. Do you understand where you live? The community is exploding. There are people that need to be reached. We need to provide space. We had been providing temporary space every way we could, but we needed that facility. But that, that's where the Lord says, son, we'll get that building, but there's going to come a confrontation down the way. And there came a time in which I realized and they realized that my leadership style was no longer working right. at that church. And I, I knew it, they knew it, and it was time for me to go somewhere else. And But I've... Some people may hear you say what that woman said and be like, well, that's crazy. But I mean, I've just had so many, not so many, but I've had multiple conversations with people where they say like, look, this is my church and this is what I know. I've got my people around me. Everything's good. When changes happen, that's when bad things happen. And so I don't want things to change. Mm-hmm. I want things to stay how they're because n- right now everything's good. Mm-hmm. And so why mess that up? Mm-hmm. And so you start to realize that like, that doesn't just come from like, oh, well, she's not even a Christian because she doesn't want to reach people. Right. It's there's such a we all have these complex histories and past and the way we see things. And a lot of times we just we just want things to be good. Yeah. And we're scared that to grow and to continue to change is going to mess everything up. Right. So there's a reason why. Right. Well, and those that, that have a hard time adjusting to change and what she was doing, she was simply speaking out that I. I've been here all this time, and there's been constant change since you've been here, and there had been. I right. mean, we had we 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 had to accommodate the community, but she was she was speaking her heart, which is great. Yeah, that she just didn't like all of the change, and and I just said, folks, a part of me says we must reach the people. And if we have to adjust our style of ministry to continue reaching the people, then that'd be the case. And if you're not comfortable doing that, if you're not willing to do that, and I just told them, then perhaps my leadership style is hurting the church rather than helping the church. Mm. So I told my deacons, I want you to pray with me for the next month 
And if you sense that my leadership style is not accommodating the church, or if I sense that, we'll come together and say, it's time to go. Well, in less than 30 days, I was contacted by First Baptist mm-hmm. Church of Greenville, and I knew the Lord was saying, son, I got another place for you to serve. I don't feel like you felt, I, I don't feel like you felt this way, but I'm curious, how do you, so you have, it didn't sound like you left on bad terms from North no, Irving, no. but it felt like things just weren't lined up. Maybe there was friction. How do you leave a church like North Irving and go to Greenville and not look back and say like, well, I'm gone. They're going to do terrible or they're yeah. going to lose people. How do you not have that? Well, I had a very good relationship with them upon leaving. They knew that it was time for somebody else. And to surprise to me, we, they had their uh, 25th anniversary of their co- coming back together. Mm. And I was invited to come back and preach for them in that process. So I knew that the friendships that I had there were still valid, and they are today. I mean, right. I communicate with a lot of those folks today. We had a great relationship, but it was just my my leadership style and their need no longer meshed. And right. so it was time for me to to move on. And there's something there's something that's God honoring about you and you and Rona both said how to exit well yeah. and how God removes you from a place is just as important as how you come into it. Mm-hmm. And that just shows that like, you know, yeah. God, God moves in weird ways. Like we're not supposed to just be for the most part, we're not just supposed to be at one place forever. God mm-hmm. changes things and moves mm-hmm. us and grows us. Um, but that doesn't mean that we just like Sherman, just burn everything yeah. in our path. Right. Yeah. So, I think we have, we have to be more more careful. So and now you've been at First Madison for seven years. A minute, yeah. Yeah, I, I went there to stay three years. <laughs> Weird how that happens. And and when our new pastor came, he he uh, did a little thing of introducing what he thought. He said, "Okay, here's a tape measure. I want you to go over here and put your age right now." And then come back on the other end, and uh, when you think you're no longer going to be in ministry or, or no longer going to be on a staff of a church, and looked at me, I'm okay. I'm 77. I've already retired one time, uh-huh. and I said, at 80, I think it's time to let somebody else take that. <laughs> I got two and a half years, yeah. <laughs> and I told him that I said I think that at 80, I need to. Let somebody else come in here and carry on and do senior adult ministry mm. like it ought to be done. Because uh, when I when I went there with, with Ronnie Falvey, I said, I'll come as congregational care. But if it involves senior adults ministries, then I'm not your man. Right. And that but that happened uh, at uh, when I had been there uh, three years and then they reorganized the staff and I became the senior adult pastor as well. What was your role before then? Just congregational care. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. What uh, what does a young, I'm not really young youth pastor anymore, I'm one of the older ones, but what does a youth pastor need to know about senior adult ministry? Know that they have a lot of uh, expertise. They have a lot of support. They're going to love you or they're going to hate you. <laughs> Because 
the, the, the ideas in worship style, the ideas in music, the ideas in dress, the ideas in activities. You've got some that's going to be right there with you and just love you. You ask for it, they're the first ones to give it. But there are some others that say, I don't like what you're doing. Mm -hmm. But you could be, you respond like John Bisogno did when he was pastor of First Baptist Church in Houston. There was a Christian school that was, campus was next to First Baptist Houston. And they were having financial problems. And so First Baptist Houston bought the property. Oh, there you go. And they moved their student ministry into that facility. And he told the church on a Sunday morning, he said, folks, they're going to have their Bible study. They're going to have their ministry in that building. And on Wednesday night, they're going to have worship over there. And unless you are really, really keen on student ministry worship, you don't want to go over there. You're going to complain about it. So don't go because you're not going to like their music. They're going to be loud. They're going to be exciting. They're going to be jumping around. They're just going to be having a great time as students. So if you don't want that, don't go. Mm. If you go over there and do it, I'm going to say, I told you so. Yeah. That's not what you're supposed to do. So the senior adults and students can have a great complimentary ministry, but worship style is going to be different. Mm. And different groups in the church uh, I mean, there's some some people that you know. We have a new pastor, and some of the, the we have, they've adjusted things a little bit. There are certain people that have come to the pastor and say, "Well, I want you to do this." He said, "Well, we will do our best to accommodate everybody, but knowing that we can't accommodate everybody." Yeah, it's like my grandfather told me when I surrendered ministry. He said, "Son, you can please part of the people all the time." You can please all the people part of the time. It's never going to happen to please everybody all the time. So you're trying to accommodate what can what can we do and still keep on tech. Love God with all your heart and soul and love love people. Mm. You you got to be willing to adjust some. Well, I think that I'm the exception because I think every senior adult here loves me and uh -huh. loves everything that I've done. And there's never, no one has ever complained. Uh -huh. <laughs> and if you believe that, <laughs> I've got some land in South Louisiana that you can. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you know, I don't, I can't speak for all other youth pastors, but for me, I've, I've had incredible relationships with senior adults that have been so for me and mm -hmm. Megan and for our ministry and that have been incredible. Yeah. And even and even here, like mm -hmm. there's not just one, there's multiple yes. of people that are like, we care about you. We care about your family. We care about this ministry. Mm -hmm. And in our own way, we want to support you. Right. And that doesn't mean that they're just going to go and on Wednesday night and jump around and act crazy, mm -mm. but they're willing to give time, money, and effort in their own ways mm -hmm. to support. Right. And so I think sometimes... I think there are churches where the senior adults create uh, a gap and a space between them and student ministry that mm -hmm. shouldn't be there necessarily. Maybe, maybe because they think, Oh, I'm too old. I can't, I don't have influence there or mm -hmm. I'm, I don't like it. So I'm going to create distance. 
And the opposite is true, where student pastors are like, these bunch of old folks don't know nothing, mm-hmm. you know? And then that was one thing I feel like God has taught me recently, especially with lay people, is, you know, there may be a guy or a lady that has never been in ministry ever, mm-hmm. but, you know, they own their own business or they worked in management for 30 years. Mm-hmm. You know, I bet you they know something about something. Mm-hmm. And maybe if we have a little bit of humility, we can learn something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And senior adults are good at that. Yes, they've done a, they've done a few things. They have been down the road. They were once young students themselves. They know what they went through, what they liked, what they didn't like, and they've grown mm-hmm. spiritually, and they've grown emotionally. They've grown in understanding what the needs of the culture are and how they have changed so much. The, the situation today, the challenge for you as a student ministry, is that student ministry itself has changed unbelievably even in the past 20 years mm. uh and you go back 20 years more and it's you can't even tell that it's the same thing i know yeah. when, when i was a student uh youth choirs for instance were a big thing well i can count on this hand the yeah. number of churches that have a youth choir all but gone all but gone i can I, matter of fact i think i know of three churches in mississippi that have a, a still have a, a viable youth choir uh, but they have youth worship, which is a totally different yeah. arena. So your ministry has changed dramatically. Well, all of church's ministry have changed dramatically. And the biggest thing was COVID. I mean, it, it really did a number right. on the churches and on the pastors. Uh, it's been a, a when, but prior to COVID, there were, about 200 churches, Southern Baptist churches that did not have a pastor. Today, there's 500 churches that do not have a pastor yeah. because they just got burned out, just could not handle it. So to see all that's happening in our culture and how do we adapt, how do we adapt? It's, it's a real struggle Yeah, in and- everything. And it's one of those things, I think it's just going to continue. You're going to have to continually adapt faster and faster mm-hmm. as things as things move and translate. Right. So I think the last thing that I want us to talk about, because I think it'll tie into discipleship, but you take it wherever you want. I was talking to, I've talked to multiple people at this point that have made comments where they've said, you know, when I was, back when I was in youth group, and they use the term youth group, which I think is important, they said, my church friends were my friends mm-hmm. and vice versa. My friends went to my church. We did everything together. I was at the church all the time. There was deep community there. Mm-hmm. And, and some people that, that community move, it ushered them into a deep relationship with Jesus and other people. It was just a, a source of community for them. Mm-hmm. And then as they left and went to college and most likely left the church, got married, had kids, and then reintegrated with the church like so many people do. So many people I've found are looking back at not just it. A lot of times it's just student ministry, but a lot of times it's ministry and church as a whole. They say, we don't seem to have the youth group anymore. We don't seem to have the deep community and the deep relationship with Jesus that it seemed like we had back in the day. Mm-hmm. It's different now. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you think that is? And, Either A, how do we get back to that, or what does that look like now? Well, the general statistics say that only 12% of the students that were very active 
in church and in Sunday school and in youth ministries, only 12% are coming back when they have kids and mm-hmm. when they marry and have kids. Uh, even those deep, most deeply involved, their commitments have gone elsewhere. One, they went to, uh, their, their jobs took them out of church. But others that went off to secular schools uh, and were confronted by not only non-believing professors, but professors that did not have any appreciation whatsoever for any kind of religion. Right. Then they they saw the world through different eyes, and they didn't. They saw what some things they liked, but how am I going to accommodate to that? And so they left church and chose not to come back to church. I've got some very dear friends that were my best friends in, in churches in the past. And when he went off to a secular school, he totally left religion mm. and he's never gone back. It's going to take a real strong influence for him to go back. Right. And his father was a pastor. Uh, some of our very best friends. Now, he's a great guy, very successful in his business, but he has no regard for church whatsoever. And if we don't find a way to help students stay somewhat connected during their collegiate ministry, whether they go to a Christian school or a secular school, but they have, if they have their belief, we've got to help them have some kind of contact in that period or we lose them, mm. and consequently, we're losing more than we're keeping, and that's been that way for decades. Yeah. So, so what? But what is? How does that look when, like here, for example, probably ninety-eight percent of our students go to Mississippi State, mm-hmm. and which is not out of state; it's not super far away, right. but it's two and a half hours away. Right. And more and more students don't come back. Mm -hmm. on holidays they get jobs in startville or oxford and they stay Mm -hmm. um and and for me my thinking is like i i don't care if you go to a first baptist startville i don't go if you care if you go to a pine lake like as long as you're involved somewhere Mm -hmm. um and hopefully you know that you have a home church that cares about Mm -hmm. you and is sending you right but it's that thing of like how do you balance letting them go but then also keeping them I, I don't know, keeping them connected. If if we had a way, at the last thing, if you to stay in touch with them and encourage keeping them connected mm. when they go off and keeping them, you know, not just coming back here, but keeping them connected. If there was some way that student ministry across the country could keep contact with and have a, a if we were properly, I'm going to go back to my discipleship mm-hmm. cap for just a moment. If we were properly discipling them during their period in the youth group, and this is for all churches, not just Baptists, but if we were properly discipling them, because those are the critical years, then when they go off to a college campus, you still have connection and communication with them. Right then you have a better chance of keeping them involved. But unfortunately, we're not discipling them. And so we're not connected to them. 
And so when they leave, they have nothing here to, to they have a memory, but they don't have a, anything that's sticky, that's keeping them close. A, a small group you do, mm. but you don't have that for, a, the, for the majority. And consequently, we're suffering. Yeah. And we have to learn the hard lesson. Okay, how do we, how do, we do that? So when you write your first book, <laughs> write the standard. Okay, how do we keep connection with those students? And how do we keep connection as disciples? And how do we pass them off, pass the baton to a person or someone where they are there in, 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 a, you know, in a secular universe particularly? Mm-hmm. Get them connected to a strong religious group. Now, when I went to Mississippi College, which is a Baptist school, yeah. I was immediately contacted by the director of, of the Baptist Student Union. Mm-hmm. And I was immediately asked to be involved there. Well, that connection, he also connected with my home pastor to say, hey, you, you need to, this, is, this guy's a, a, a new, newly surrendered student minister, yeah. and I need, for you to, I need for you to help him to stay connected. Well, I didn't know I had the that was connection. I didn't know that was going on. But my pastor and the BSU director were talking. We're talking. Yeah. And that kept me connected. And and I've had those conversations with, you know, different people at different churches in Startville. Um, of course, that's way different because Startville's got a hundred thousand people in it or something crazy. Right. Um, I think my first book, it would be a precursor to that book. Yeah. Would be if. When I, if and when I figure out how to get adults in in, in a busy, affluent, children-focused city mm-hmm. to say, I'm going to buy into a student ministry and pour my life out for students mm-hmm. and get buy-in, I think that changes everything. Mm-hmm. And we have some of that. And, th- and then when I see it, I just, I want to just bottle it and say, how do we multiply this? Mm-hmm. But when you see these people who have very busy lives, have very busy families, but they step out of that and they say, I want to hang out with teenagers who mm-hmm. are awkward to talk to. And it's like they are all about themselves and are not speaking against our students. All teenagers and all yeah. young people have an inherent selfishness because that's just how we're yeah. wired. Yeah. But for someone to say, I'm going to step out and step into your world and do life with you and disciple you mentor you it's weird i talk to people about discipleship and it always throws them and they don't really know what it is or it's intimidating but i'll say something like mentorship or have a mentee and they're like oh well that's not bad i'd Mm -hmm. love to have a mentor Mm -hmm. and i'm like well we're talking about the same thing here right we have a guy and he he has sold out to discipling students you can say his name he deserves a shout out yeah yeah kendall adcock yeah he is. He does sports ministry. He does small group Bible study. He does evangelism and discipleship. He's not married, so his schedule can be crazy as he wants to. But he's sold out to being sure that the students there are being connected. And when they go off, yep. he keeps the contact. And out of his group, he has students that are at New Orleans Seminary because they were reached through the ministry he was involved in. They were discipled there. They were kept involved. But he, he said, I, that's what my, I got a job, mm-hmm. but I have a ministry. And so he sold out to that. Now, he's rare. He, the, you, you don't find many guys like yeah. Kendall, but he is a, he's a great guy. He has done so much. Schedule, unreal. Right. Just unreal. 
but we have to be willing to make those kind of adjustments and uh, some of us aren't yeah that's that's the part that i'm i'm trying to like i said i'm trying to bottle it because we have some that are doing it they're they're doing it right now and it's incredible um i think so many times, especially now in discipleship, we say discipleship is as you go. And I believe that a hundred percent discipleship yeah. is as you go. Right. The hard part with student ministry with as you go ministry is unless you have teenagers, it's really not an as you go ministry mm-hmm. because so few of us interact closely with teenagers on a day to day basis. I mean, maybe if you work, if your job is you work at the same place teenagers work, but for the most part, you, it's not a place where you just deeply invest with students. So mm-hmm. it's something that you have to, you have to make the, the conscious choice of I'm going to do this. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I think we shoot student ministers in the foot where we say, Hey, you need to be discipling people in your family and people where you work. Um, it, and that's true. But at the same time, sometimes you're called to step into a student ministry and mm-hmm. say, I haven't set foot in high school since I've been in high school, but I'm going to start doing that for students. Right? I don't care about football because I'm not playing football anymore, but mm-hmm. I'm going to go to a football game and talk to these cheerleaders and this band people and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. That just that takes intentionality that is right. not as you go, That's in right. my opinion. It, it does. It, it takes a lot. And you you got to have a, in, in your case, you have to have a committed wife and committed kids you you have to grow them, but you have to take time for them. You have to make the time for them as you're making time for those students. I mean, right. uh, but it will consume your time. It's it is it is not. I don't think it's fair to call it a balance because it's something that I fight for. Right. Because it's one of those things where you if you're not careful either way either you spend all your time at home with your family and you don't do your job well and you don't do your calling well or you're like you said you're consumed by the needs of a hundred families and people pay the price for that they do and so that's kind of something i've realized is to make it to balance to to say balance almost seems like it's just a little bit here and a little bit there and you kind of feel it Mm-hmm. For me, it has been something to fight against mm-hmm. and not like it's an, an enemy, but it's something that just takes deliberate action mm-hmm. that I have to say, like, I'm, I'm choosing to not do ministry today so that I can do family stuff. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's saying like, I have to make sure I'm working today. I have to make sure I'm meeting with people today and not just hanging out with family. Right. And so it, it to me, it's, it's something very deliberate, deliberate and delicate. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so as we end, so we have youth pastors, we have other churches that watch this, but we also have Sunday school leaders, people that are in charge of ministry. that are trying to figure out discipleship. I wanted you to kind of plug your thing with discipleship and how you're trying to help people figure out discipleship. Well, a part of what we're doing at, at first Madison are the, uh, our D groups, disciple groups, mm-hmm. We started four years ago. We're going really strong. And then uh, Dr. Falvey just said, I can't do this anymore. He couldn't do ministry anymore. So when he backed away, mm-hmm. was it, it was right at the threshold when we were just ready to really launch. Well, we're still launching it. Yep. Uh, our present pastor is a 
committed disciple maker. So mm. we have to be intentional along with him. Uh, I've had the privilege of leading three different groups. Uh, the first group exploded, and they're all doing groups. The second group was a challenge. Not all of them stuck with it. Uh, I've got uh, three guys right now that I'm. Uh, we're working through understanding what it means to do discipleship and evangelism. But you have to do both and not just one. You can't just disciple people. You have to help them understand how you do relational discipleship because, one, we don't just go knocking on doors like right. we used to do. One, you can't get the names of people. So you have to ask the Lord, um, okay, Lord, how and who and where and when can I help my folks contact non-believers so that they can share their testimony and build a relationship because it is evangelism and discipleship. That means it's relationship and building relationship. Yeah. So it's it's a struggle. It takes a long time. You can't come in and say, okay, we're going to have a six weeks course in evangelism and discipleship, and then you go do it. Doesn't work that way. Yeah. It's relational. And learning the the canned, you know, if you were to die today, do you know where you'd go? Right. Is helpful in some senses, but very not helpful in a lot of senses. Yeah. I just read a, a, a powerful book in that regard by Mark Cahill called One Thing You Can't do in heaven that's the title that's the title of the book okay the one thing you cannot do in heaven is share the plan of salvation because they're all already christians but he spends the whole time okay how can you share the plan of salvation and he, his basis of uh is are the ten commandments to how okay. gets people to understand are you a believer? He asked a strong question starting out. Do you know where you're going to be five minutes after you die? I mean, that's a boom in your face. Yeah. And well, what do you mean? Uh -huh. Okay. Do you think you have a relationship? Well, I'm as good as anybody. Mm -hmm. Well, have you made? A, have you committed sin? Well, no. <laughs> and then he goes down through the Ten Commandments, just asking questions. Do you do this? Do you you love God? Do you love His Word? Do you love people? Have you cheated on anybody? Have you have you stolen? Have, have you committed adultery? Have you? Well, you're getting too personal. Well, mm -hmm. have you sinned? The Scripture says if you've got one sin in your life then you're lost. Mm. So you, he said you have to get them to the point of understanding that they do not have a relationship with Christ. And without condemning them, you gently lead them to the understanding of, okay, here's what Jesus did for you because of your unwillingness to follow him. Mm. What you, he said you have to develop a relationship which can lead into their coming to understand Christ which can lead into an opportunity for now, I'm going to show you how to grow in Christ, biblical discipleship. Just an amazing story after story after story after story after story. And so he goes all over the country uh, sharing what God convicted him to do. Our culture here, that's hard to do because we have a hard time building relationships with non-believers people in church 
their relationships, their friendships are with people in church. Mm. We don't get outside the body. I've got a friend in Nepal. His name is Kumar Palai. He's been a believer about 20 years. He was led to Christ by one of our Southern Baptist missionaries, uh, Jeff Sundell. Today, he probably has, in, in, in the past year, he has planted more than 300 churches across India. Over 100,000 people have come to faith in Christ and has been, it's in the process of being discipled. Mm. A young man named Gibson in South Africa, in, in uh, Zambia, eight years ago, started a church with eight people in his home. That eight has grown to over 2,000 in nine churches that have started other churches as well. But each of those, he's taught, he'd done biblical, very intentional biblical discipleship. Some of that's taking place here, but we don't see church in the same way here that they do in their culture. Mm. Uh, and until we see church in the eyes and the words of biblical discipleship, we're going to have a struggle to do it. Uh, I've been struggling for 40 years, <laughs> but I'm not going to give up. I'm, I believe with all my heart that God's going to have a movement of biblical discipleship in, in this state, in this county, in this nation. Mm. It's just going to take a lot of hard work and a lot of prayer. And there's, and like you said, there's you can get a taste of it in some areas. Like Robbie, uh, you said Robbie Gowdy earlier. Yeah. His church is exploding. Right. And, and that's a taste of right. what happens when someone is consumed with the gospel, but also right. with yeah. discipleship and sanctification and right. pursuing Jesus. Right. And you have to be careful about what he's, what you're doing. Like the church he came from to Long Hollow, the guy that followed him stopped all mm. biblical discipleship. And you say, why? But different person, yeah. different personalities. But Robbie's committed, committed to it and uh, doing a strong work. So if you, I'm looking at the camera now, if you're a youth pastor, if you're a pastor, if you're a Sunday school leader, or if you're just someone who fills a call, or maybe you've got some students that you're in charge of, or mm -hmm. your own kids, mm -hmm. um, we think it's important. And, you know, if, if someone wants to, ask you questions or figure out kind of how do I do that? I mean, you can come, you can contact me and I'll just push you over. They can mm -hmm. go to first Madison and, mm -hmm. and really start to figure out what does it really mean to have biblical relational discipleship? Very intentional. Yeah. You, you really got to want to it cause you got, it's a price to be paid and that's time. And we don't want to give it that much time. Yeah. We want it to be done quickly. Discipleship was not done quickly. It took Jesus three years to train 12 men and one of them didn't didn't pan didn't, out so didn't well. take didn't take <laughs> so uh we we just have to walk by faith and saying lord i'm going to do this you're going to show me how and it's going to work and it's it will it just takes a lot of time and hard work mm. that's awesome well, that's about all I got. Uh, I'm, I'm I, I would love to have you. I, I was thinking earlier, I think it would be great to have a conversation with you and a couple other people about 
what does evangelism look like in a changing in a changing time? Mm-hmm. Because it's it's my belief, in my opinion, that the old uh, I forgot what it's called, but you know, the if you were to die today, where would that evangelism strategy? A lot of those what I would call canned evangelism knocking on doors. The training can be helpful, but the how you go about it is just, it doesn't really work anymore. And there's a lot of reasons, but that doesn't mean we stop doing evangelism. No, you have to find what will work in the culture yeah. where you are. I mean, the knocking on doors, cold door, cold door calls mm-hmm. does work in some places. In Madison, Mississippi, it's extremely hard. I've been there. We've done it. And in the neighborhoods where we've tried to do it, I would say maybe 2% of response. But when we tried to start our first Bible study out of that 2%, we had one meeting, and then they didn't want to continue. So it's a struggle. But you have to keep on working at the relationships. Mm. And it's better as you go. Like I was telling you about uh, Jeff Sundell from South Carolina, uh, he has started hundreds of small group Bible studies, and uh, they originated in places that you wouldn't expect to do it, like in a Walmart checkout line. He could develop a relationship with a person just by talking. He says, I always go to the longest line that's at Walmart, so I'll have at least five or ten minutes Uh to talk to that person before. He said, just to build a a small relationship. Yeah. Well, we are in, seem to be in too, our society is too fast. Mm-hmm. We're not willing to take that time. So we got to slow down a little bit, which would be good for all of us. I think we got to slow down a lot of bit. Yeah. Especially, especially where we are. Right. In such a, in such High a speed. Yes. High so speed. we're going to have to get you back on. Cause I, I would want to dive more into detail about that and just, how do you do that well? Because mm-hmm. I think we're the pendulum is swinging. I think mm-hmm. some people are just stalwarts of the I'm going to knock on doors and ask these questions and get these answers, and other people say that doesn't work, so I'm not doing it. Right. And I think neither of those are the best answer. No. <laughs> I think one no. is wrong. Yeah. But right. um, we'll do that. So right now, if someone wants to find you, Sunday morning at First Baptist is a great place to start. Thank you. I'll be out there in the lobby waiting for. Them. That'd be great. Steven, any closing questions, thoughts, comments? Not really. I've just been taking in the conversation. We've been good. We went after it. Yeah, you did. That was great. Well, um, I don't have a whole lot else. So thank you for the opportunity. We'll see you on the next one. Yes, sir. (laughs) Well, good deal.